So, um, I'm going to try and um, look at this passage. If you remember what we're doing, I'm switching gears now a little bit. Yeah, for the few weeks in the past, we, we looked at this idea of what it meant to be a light and, and the salt. And um, now we're kind of narrowing it down a little bit. And you've got to remember where I'm going with this is, is, is this. And that is we're going to eventually try and deal with some of the things that, that we are exposed to, that we learn, that we hear about on media or in our communities, or even here, even amongst us, as we think about some of the issues that we uh, deal with today um, in our culture with particular issues that can be very polarizing and uh, even difficult to navigate as a Christian. And I think as we look at this passage, I'm painting a broad picture of, I think, an approach to how we understand how we relate as Christians in the culture that we live in today. One of the things that I questioned myself when I first started the church was, what is the role of Sojourner Presbyterian Church in the world? How do we interact? What's our purpose? What's the, and what's the role of a Christian? How do we engage with our current communities and our current society and our current culture and its ways of thinking? Um, how do we navigate that today? And it's not as easy as you think. Um, you know, oftentimes as a Christian, you might think that, well, you know, everything's black and white. But the problem is, is that not everything is black and white. Uh, some things are very difficult to, to understand. Some things might be black and white for you, but maybe a little gray for somebody else. And so it's a little more nuanced. It's more sophisticated, this idea of Christian living as we engage culture. It's, it's very different. Um, let me try to put it this way. I was born in America, right? Born in Indianapolis, of all places. The parents immigrated in 72, uh, born there in, in, the, in the capital of Indiana. And so I was born an American. Uh, my grandfather would always remind me, look in the mirror, right? You're still, you still look Asian. You have Korean blood. But I'm a natural-born citizen and culturally, therefore, pretty much American for the most part. But I wasn't always treated as such growing up, especially when I grew up in the South. You know, I went to an elementary school where segregation was still kind of there, and they were not trying to integrate. And so one year I went to school, everyone was white. And the next year I went, all of a sudden, half the people were black. But the thing is, me and this one Vietnamese kid were the only other Asians in the whole school. And so growing up in that kind of, of, of culture, it's a little bit confusing if you kind of grew up this way. I mean, do you, do you, do you engage with uh, white friends or do you engage with black friends? Do you try to do both? Um, you're the only Asian there. And, and sometimes, you know, you get remarks from not only white kids, but you get remarks from the black kids and you kind of got both sides of, of the racism. Like back then, they didn't know Korea, right? They thought it was a place in China. And so it, it was culturally confusing for me. But the thing is, my wife and many of uh, us who are like her immigrated to America when they were um, maybe in their teens or in their junior high years. And so for someone like her, she is culturally Korean, but now adjusting to American culture. And so there you have someone who is literally bicultural. And she always reminds me of this, that I will never fully understand, no matter how hard it was for me growing up, what it was like for her to grow up as an immigrant, living culturally Korean, but in American culture. It was very difficult. It was, it was very hard. It's kind of like black people, you know, like Malcolm X would say, no matter, you know, 
how pro-black lives matter you are, if you're not black, you will never fully understand what it's like, right? And, and so that's what she would say to me, you know, you don't understand, you'll never fully understand what it's like to be a bicultural person living here in the States. And so culturally speaking, uh, for someone like my wife, it, it was a confusing time. How do you act, right? How are, how are you to relate to people? Do you, do you do things like you did in Korea or do you do things like they do, try and do American, or do you both? And oftentimes what happens is you kind of mix it up. You, you pick and choose like what you like or what, you, what you're used to in your original culture, but then you pick and choose what you like about American culture and you kind of mix it up and you know, do what we think is best or do, we think, do what we think is like, what we like and we call them 1.5, right? But the problem is, is that it's an identity issue. It's an identity issue. And it's the same as being Christian. There, there's not a, a probably more important idea than the idea of identity as a Christian. But the thing is, navigating that in our country, it's not always so clear what is the Christian way, especially these days, how we relate to, how we navigate the, the places that we live in, uh, the places that many of us are immersed in. And back in the day, you know, it, it was really easy. It was simple as well. You know someone's a Christian because they don't smoke, they don't drink, they don't curse, they don't listen to secular music, and, and maybe they didn't go to the prom, right? But those things, they've changed, right, for the most part. We don't think like that for the most part, I think. And nothing today is now more polarizing than the areas of politics. If I'm a Christian, does that mean I vote a Republican? Or if I'm really Christian, does that mean I vote Democrat? Nothing more polarizing today than some of the social issues that we hear about, especially these days, with racism, with BLM, with LGBTQ, with abortion, and so on and so forth. And if you're here thinking and sitting there, well, all Christians are like this, and therefore all Christians think like that, and that's the way I don't like all Christians, you don't have an accurate picture of what it means to be a Christian. You have a straw man picture of what they are. And you're probably not up to date on the landscape of Christianity because never have Christians been more divided and even at odds with one another, I think, than today on many of the issues that we hear about and experience. How do we navigate this? What is the Christian way on some of these things? Is there a Christian way? Am I gonna go to hell because I support gay marriage? Is something wrong with me if I'm totally on board with Black Lives Matter, but I'm not so comfortable with LGBTQ? Do I stand ground on, on some particular issues or do I try and blend in? How do I take seriously the things that are going around, uh, around me and even in my children's thinking and yet also take seriously the faith that I've committed to? And so the struggle is real, but it's not necessarily new. Uh, this is the sermon that I tried to boil it down. Um, it is more of a learning thing for many of us, but let me try to do it this way. It's not a new issue, the struggle here with surrounding culture. In fact, even in the Old Testament, we find this with the people of God, Israel, um, in the early days. Three things I want us to see here, or at least maybe just two. First, we see here God's people in Canaan. Secondly, we'll see God's people not in Canaan. And then thirdly, we'll see God's people today. God's people in Canaan, God's people not in Canaan, and then God's people today. 
And we'll see the struggle or the, the sort of, I guess, oxymoron that we kind of see here. Let's look at this. I'm going to look at this passage in Jeremiah that Sammy just read for us. But what I, what I want to do is I want to approach this passage from the back door. Okay, I'm going to look from the previous passages and then progress to Jeremiah 29 and then continue to progress to the New Testament. So just follow me along. Okay? I try to make it as interesting as possible. But, but I think it's so important to really understand who we are, especially living today. So you know the big story of the Old Testament, especially after, in Exodus. You know, Moses is in Egypt. He says basically to Pharaoh, let my people go. And they go. And where do they go? They go to Canaan. That's the whole point, right? The whole travel, 40 years in the wilderness, traveling to Canaan. And why? Because Canaan was the promised land. And you've got to ask, why was Canaan so special? Why was it the promised land? But you know how the story goes. Moses leads them the most of the way. You know, they're complaining along the way, but they eventually get there. But Moses doesn't actually get to Canaan or in Canaan. Joshua takes over, and he finishes the job, and he leads them into Canaan. And so when you read the Old Testament... How God's people were to interact with the rest of the world was very simple. When they got to Canaan, okay, the question of culture was very easy. They spent a thousand years total probably in that place, Canaan, once they got there. They had a king all the time who was in the line of David, all right? And the way you're supposed to live in that place was that all of life needs to conform to the Ten Commandments to the laws of Moses. And if you break that law, you would get punished, even in some cases put to death. And so they had these weird laws or rules. If you're living there in Canaan, this is what you're supposed to do. You're forbidden from marrying foreigners, as we're chapter 9. You're forbidden from engaging with other nations and making contracts and covenants, Exodus 23, Joshua 9. You're even, you're even forbidden from sharing the diet, the food of the surrounding culture, Daniel chapter 1. Can you imagine that, that if in this country that was the rule, you can never have Korean food, you can never have Italian food or Thai food, but you can only have American food? I mean, it's, it's, it's really kind of crazy. There was no distinction when they lived here. There was no difference between religious and everyday. There was no room for Christian and non-Christian. It was my house, my rules. And what's really crazy is this, what's really disturbing is this. In order to make Canaan like this, when you read Exodus 23, this is what they had to do. There were people living there already, right? It's in Exodus 23, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Canaanites. And God tells them, before you get there and make that your place, you need to get rid of all those other people. You need to remove all these other foreign cultures. You need to drive them out. Exodus 34, observe what I command you this day. I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Parasites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, so on and so forth. And that's why they came in and oftentimes in the process of driving out, they ended up fighting and they ended up killing and they ended up removing all the enemies, all the enemies, all the foreigners in the land to make it their home. Now, at this point, you should be wondering, some of you should be thinking, that's kind of embarrassing, isn't it? That's genocide. That's what people will say, but it's not quite genocide. It's a little different. But the point is, how could God command such a thing? Canaan is your land. Take it over. Get rid of all those people. Get rid of all those idols. Get rid of all the foreigners. 
How could God command such a thing? That sounds like the Christian version of extremist radical Islam. Holy jihad, right? Isn't that bad? And that would be bad. But here's why things like, were like that. And to better understand why that was so, ask yourself this question. What is heaven like? Do you ever wonder? You ever think about it? What would heaven really be like? If there's heaven, what, what would it really be like? And I bet you if I asked the question to 100 people, we'd probably get 100 different answers. You know, I once spent a day with this guy who was a member of the golf club somewhere up in Jersey. I think it was Montana Golf Club or something. You, you know, I guess it was an expensive place. I don't really golf. I didn't really care. But he brought me in and he showed me in. He was so excited. I mean, I've never seen a guy so excited about a golf club. And he'd take me, you know, show, give me some drinks and then take me out to the, to the, to the, the greens. And it was, it was pretty. I mean, it was really nice. But he would be, like, excited. And he'd be, it's like he was in Sound of Music. He would just be in the grass turning around. And he's like, this place, this place, this place, it's like, it's like. And I said, it's like heaven? He said, yes. It's like heaven. Maybe to you, heaven is where you get to play golf all year long and you always shoot a hole in one. Maybe for you, heaven is like, you know, where you eat all the food you want and you never gain weight. But in fact, you only get stronger and leaner and, and better looking. I don't know, maybe heaven is where you're not fighting with your spouse anymore and, and your kids always listen to you and they go to Harvard or Princeton. Maybe that's heaven. You know, maybe, maybe heaven is, is like a place where you, you go to work and it's always fun, and you never get stressed, and you make millions and millions of dollars, right? Or maybe simpler, right? Maybe for you, heaven is where everyone you love is there, and no one ever gets sick, but it's always healthy. I once tried evangelizing to my sister once, telling her about what it means to be a Christian, talking about Jesus Christ. I lectured her for about half an hour, and at the end of the lecture, I was expecting a response, and the only question she had was this, will my dog be there? Maybe that's heaven for you. What will heaven be like for you? Did you know that for some Jews, heaven is sitting around the ultimate Bible study teacher, doing Bible study for eternity? Now, I know that for some of us it sounds like hell, but, uh, you know, that's what they believe. What will heaven be like? And unfortunately, we, we don't really have an, an answer. We don't really know clearly. We have some hints. You know, you read Revelation 21. It's going to be a place where there's no more tears, pain. There's no suffering or death. There's no more sin. We have an idea that heaven will be a place where what was broken will no longer be broken but restored. Maybe, maybe even better than before. It's, it's supposed to be a place maybe of ultimate love, infinite joy. My professor in seminary once said this. Heaven will be a place where there is nothing in this world that you will miss when you are there in heaven. But we don't know much more. But here's the thing. When you look at the Bible, we know at least one thing. This much about heaven. Heaven is where God is. Heaven is where Jesus Christ is. The one that we worship every Sunday, the one that gave his life for a ransom as for many, that's where he is. And so to be with him is in essence heaven. Home is where the heart is, they say. But if your heart is for Jesus, then your home is where he is. And heaven, if you don't want Jesus, you really don't want heaven. 
at least the biblical understanding of it. But because that, I think, is what it is, where the God of the Bible is, that is where heaven is. It means necessarily this. Whatever you think heaven is going to be like, it must mean not only is it going to be a place of ultimate love and, and perfect joy, but it's also a place of infinite righteousness and holiness. Why? Because God is not just loving and merciful and gracious, but he is infinitely holy. Isaiah chapter 6, holy, holy, holy. And that means this. God doesn't just set a standard of righteousness and goodness. He is righteousness and goodness. He doesn't just give you a measure of what is good and what is bad. He is himself the measure. He is the plumb line by which we measure all things. He, in fact, what is what makes things like justice, righteousness, and goodness even possible. And so this God, if he compromises himself, himself, then all goodness and righteousness eventually falls apart. And so now you understand why the Israelites lived the way they did when they were in Canaan. Listen carefully. Canaan, for the people of God, was heaven. It was their heaven on earth. And in that place would rule not just love and joy and flourishing as it was promised, but also holiness, justice, and righteousness to the nth degree. And in order to make that so, they had to clear the way for the holiness of God. They had to remove the idolaters. They had to remove the foreign government. They had to make it their own. They had to set up their own king in the line of David. And the word of God would be the law of the land. Canaan was to be the kingdom of God on earth. It's heaven on earth. And that's why they did what they did. All of life was religious. All of life was holy, set apart for him. And that's why they had these rules like you can't marry foreigners. You can't enter relationships with other nations. You can't share diets from other pagan cultures or, or in, uh, peoples. Um, and I'm not sure how, what you think about that. You, you might still feel like that just still, still doesn't seem right. Maybe it's even wrong. And, and maybe so. But I want you to know this. The Bible is not a book of right and wrong. It's a history you know, kind of like a photo album, in the beginning you have baby pictures, but as you keep looking at it, you see adult pictures. There's a progress here in their growth and in their relationship here. And what you see here is that you see a progress in the Old Testament, how people, God's people, living in their culture, they had to grow into a more fuller, more sanctified picture of what it means to live for him. So you keep reading the Bible, now you come to our passage. Jeremiah chapter 29, okay? Now, here's the difference. They're not in Canaan anymore. They're in Babylon, a foreign country, in a foreign place, with a foreign king, under foreign rules. And God tells his people again how to live. And if you read verse 5, this is what he says. Build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their fruit, Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage so they could bear children. You know, basically have families. Multiply there and don't decrease. And verse 7, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you. Pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. 
Now, you, if you're following me, do you hear a difference? In the beginning, God tells Israel how to live. Get the foreigners out. Don't do anything with them. Remove the idolaters, right? Execute them if you have to, but move them out. Drive them out. And then Jeremiah 29, build houses, get married, have kids, and pray for them. Pray for your city. Different, isn't it? What happened? What changed? And here's the thing. What changed was not the people. What changed was the place. And when they were in Canaan, heaven on earth, that's what it was. But it didn't last because people were messed up and they said, yeah, we want to go our own way. We want to do our own thing. And so they got judged and God sent the Babylonian Empire to come in, take the, Can uh, the Israelites out of Canaan, right, and bring them into their own land as slaves. They conquered Canaan, took the Israelites into captivity, and took them back to their own home in Babylon. And so now in Jeremiah 29, what you find here is the people of God living not in the promised land, in the foreign land. They had a king, someone not in the line of David, but a Gentile pagan king. The law was no longer the laws of God. It was the constitution of that country that was there. So what did you expect God to tell the people there in Babylon? And here's what I would have expected. Hey, guys, you got to get it together. you got to come together. Form a rebellion group. Storm the capital, right? Take it over. Get those Babylonians out of there. Make it this place your own. Put in your own leader, right? Get the Bible back into the constitution. Turn Babylon into the new promised land. Sound familiar? But God doesn't tell him that, does he? In fact, he tells him the very opposite. Do life. Have families. Take care of things at home. Plant a garden. And pray for your country. They were to make Babylon, their home away from home. You get it? Sometimes it's not just knowing who you are that's important. Sometimes it's also knowing where you are that's important. Before they were in Canaan, get them out. Now they're not in Canaan, pray for it. Why? Why? Oh, because the Babylonians, they make great pizza. So let's be nice to them so we can share that food. No. Why? And it's very simple, right? Even though there were probably some good things that they got to enjoy while living in Babylon, they still knew it was not their home. They still knew that Babylon, as good as it might have been, could never be the new promised land. And so what God was teaching his people and the Israelites along the way, they had to learn their identity, that they were exiles now. They were sojourners, according to Peter, the, the name of our church. They were to, yes, make their home now, but only for a while as they wait for their final home to come. And now you know what verse 11 is about. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. You know, maybe you've heard this verse before. I think it's probably one of the most out-of-context verses we have. You know, we think that, oh, yeah, what am I going to do about work? 
don't worry. God has a plan for you. He, he knows your future to give you hope, right? And we, oh, okay. You know, what, am I going to get married? Don't worry. You know, God has a plan for you. And he's going to give you a welfare, not evil, and give you a future and a hope. And, and we think that's about me. That's about me. And I'm not saying that's completely wrong, but it's not the context of this passage. God is not talking to individuals. He's talking to Israel as a nation. A nation living in a place that was not their own. And the promise, the plan, the future, and the hope was this. That one day, God will bring them into a situation that isn't so temporary or fragile. He's going to bring them into a place that can't be conquered and will not fall. He's going to give them a king who will never fail or go corrupt or even die. That's the promise. I know the plans I have for you to give you a future and a hope. Now let's progress. And you get now to the New Testament. Matthew chapter 4. Here comes Jesus. He's baptized, right? He comes out of the water. Now he begins his ministry and he starts preaching. And the very first thing he preaches is this. What? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. Where was it? Where is the kingdom? You read the Gospel of John. Jesus is now on trial before Pilate. And in John chapter 18, Pilate says to him, Am I a Jew? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What have you done? And this is what Jesus says. Verse 36, he says, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is not of this realm. Do you see it? Oftentimes when we think about Jesus and going to the cross, we, we, we're so individualistic. It's like all about me, right? Jesus died for me. He, Jesus saved my life. Jesus helped me get over my struggle. Jesus helped me conquer my sins. And he gives me what I pray for. And on some level, that's, that's absolutely true. But I'm sorry to say this. It ain't all about you. God is not trying to just be a part of your life. He didn't come and die and rise from the dead so you could kind of fit him into your life and your plans and your future hopes come true. But he came and he died and he lived and he rose again as a king full of mercy and grace and holiness and righteousness to make you a part of his life. To make you a part of his plan along with everyone around the world to make you a part of his kingdom to bring you into his family, to give you his home. And where is his home? Literally, out of this world. Whenever you read Jeremiah 20 and 11, for I know the plans I have for you, I want you to read John chapter 14. Every time you look at that verse, look at 14, and this is what Jesus says. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. Here's the point. Christians today. Contrary to the 1980s song by Belinda Carlisle, lead singer of the Go-Go's, Ooh, heaven is a place on earth. Remember that song? But what Israel was learning, what they had to learn, and really what we need to learn and to remember, heaven can never be a place on earth. Never be a place on earth. 
And I think this is where we struggle. Maybe you're not trying to build the kingdom of God here on earth. But we're so busy building our own little kingdoms here on earth. We live, we work, we play as if this is it. And we try to make it last as long as we can, only to be brutally reminded sometimes that nothing really lasts. Sure, in this world, there are a lot of good things. God gives us good, but they were meant to be temporary tokens of something better to come. So that the good we have now creates gratitude in us and causes us to live for him and look forward to a permanent good. But what we do is this. We idolize the good in this world and we say, this is it. This is what I live for. And there's nothing else to look forward to. And when it doesn't happen, we're crushed. We worship created things rather than the creator. Also, when bad things happen, when evil happens, it, it, it ought to remind us that, of course, this world is flawed. It's broken. People are messed up. And we ought to pray, Lord, come quickly because there's got to be something better than this now. And we look forward then to our final home. But what we do is we finalize the evil. We finalize the bad and say, this is so bad in my life, it's done. My life is over, there's no hope. But if we know that we are home, away from home, destined for him, there's bad. But there's nothing in this world so bad that it will not be overcome or undone in the next. And there is good in this world. But nothing in this world so good that it will cause you to be so satisfied just for here and now. How do we engage with people, with situations that happen to us, around us, with the culture that we live in that can sometimes seem so different, even at odds with the Christian worldview? How do we deal with that? Think of it this way. If people are wondering if there's a heaven... If people are wondering what heaven is like, they can't see it, they don't know the Bible, or they don't even believe in it, then guess what? You're it. You're it. You are the people of God today. You've been saved by grace. You've been created for his glory. Heaven is your home. You're citizens of that place. You're the heavenly people of God. You are the people of God, the extension of that promise in Jeremiah 29. He will be you, God, your God. You will be his people. You might be the only taste of heaven people get. So you not only give thanks to God for every blessing you get here and now, but you pray for the blessing of others. You show what compassion and forgiveness is when nobody else will. You speak out for justice and wrong in the world and you pursue peace. Not because that's what everybody else seems to be doing, but because your Father in heaven who is holy sought peace. How? By satisfying justice on a cross when he paid your sin to bring you home. No justice, no peace. You live in a way that shows even though you live here, you're not really from here. You seek the welfare of others around you. You pursue reconciliation because you've been reconciled. You act mercifully even to your enemies, even if you happen to disagree on any particular issue, social or otherwise. In other words, you are bicultural. 
living in this world, but from another place. And as such, you are meant to be salt and light. You are people of destiny. Destiny comes from the word destination. Your ultimate destination is to come. So you live like that right now. Now this doesn't answer all the particular individual questions we might have. But it ought to give us a general picture of how we approach a lot of the issues in the world. The disagreements, even, even, even the conflicts that we experience over certain issues. And as we move forward, we'll figure out how we do that. But for now, consider yourselves this. You are exiles, sojourners in a foreign land, and you are called to live as such. Let's pray.